You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 191 of the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. We are up in the Lake District today um, in Cumbria uh, to meet. Although, actually, are we on? The, are you in the lakes? You, you must be just outside the lakes. We're, we're just on the edge of it. We're just south of it, about by, by a mile, I think, you know. Yeah. So we're in Cumbria anyway to meet farmer and cheesemaker. Martin Gott, I'm I'm always excited when I I love my cheese. I'm always excited when we when we have a cheese a cheese person on. Uh, Martin runs uh, Olka Farm and St James Cheese with his wife Nicola. Martin and Nicola have rented the Cumbrian farm since 2006 after moving up from Somerset. Uh, they established a flock of milking sheep and began making farmhouse artisan cheese. Previously, Martin worked alongside two other cheesemakers, both making cheese from raw milk, one with goats in Somerset and one making Lancashire cheese near Preston. Martin grew up in Lancashire and whilst he wasn't raised on the farm, his father did farm pigs near Kendall in Cumbria. After working for four years as a butcher for his father, he left to follow his passion in cheese and begin what would become his cheesemaking career. After 18 months in Lancashire, Martin moved with Nicola to Somerset to work part-time for legendary farmhouse cheesemaker Mary Holbrook. It was during this period that they bought some sheep and started experimenting with their own cheese, which resulted in St. James' peas. They returned north to take up their tenancy on just 20 acres of land alongside their 100 or so sheep during COVID. They took on a load of goats now make Goat's cheeses alongside the sheep's cheese. In 2018, Martin started a Nuffield scholarship on the subject of, uh, quote, prevalence and importance of indigenous bacterial cultures in raw milk cheese, which took me, I, I find that a, a riveting title. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. But that, that took him to the US. And among other things, he learned about microbiology from a cheesemaking nun who held a PhD. I'm also intrigued by that story. Martin, welcome to Meet the Farmers. How's your week going? How are you? I'm really good. Um, yeah, you've covered a lot of things there. Um, start with cheese. Uh, where does your interest and intrigue in cheese come from, do you reckon? So I, I grew up as, as a uh, in a family whose, whose history was grocer shops. So my nana had grocer, grocer shops in the 50s and 60s, and she had a small chain of grocers in the northwest, um, about nine shops in total uh, in her heyday. Um, and part of that was wow. that they sold cheeses and they sold a huge diversity of cheese, which was Lancashire or Wensleydale. Um, and that was pretty much the sum total of her cheese offer. Um, and then when the imports really opened up from, uh, you know, after the Second World War, she sort of spun out to Canadian cheddar. So, you know, it's Canadian cheddar, oh. Lancashire or Wensleydale was the offer as part of her grocery range. Um, and so that meant that my father, when he was in his 20s, ended up taking on market stalls. That they had that were sort of ran alongside these shops and he ended up taking uh, one arm which was the sort of cheese stalls if you like that then expanded to become um in the 70s a, a you know, huge array of cheese was coming in from the continent and in from europe um and he got really excited about selling this cheese on market stalls so he would attend 
uh, Milnthorpe or Kendall Market with you know up to I think he he, he brags it was you know up to five hundred or a thousand types of cheese on display or something like that. But you know a huge array of cheeses that a lot of people probably would never have seen or heard of. Um, and he got excited about that cheese business and selling it. Okay, the supermarkets like devastated that um, and kind of destroyed that business. And he he sort of tried to adapt but found it increasingly difficult. Um, and somehow ended up doing uh, going to agricultural shows and game fairs and big sort of country events and traveling much further than the local area. So he'd go up and down the country and even up to Scotland uh, to stand these big events where they'd get a lot of people in for a day or two and he'd stand and sell this huge range of cheese. Um, and as a teenager, about 12 or 13 years old, I started going with him uh, and hanging out at these events and, and selling this cheese. And at that time, the only cheese he really could sort of sell at a decent profit was the sort of rejects and downgrades from the supermarkets. So he would right. get... The Kirkham's Lancashire that was too sharp uh, for you know the sort of the, the the Lancashire graders, or he would get the cheddar that was too blue for the cheddar graders in Somerset, you know. And as the supermarkets dominated and started to um, it kind of constrict what what cheesemakers could send them, and started to really hone in on um, I guess what they would perceive as quality, there was all this reject cheese floating around. And my dad realised he could buy that cheap, and he could take it to markets, and he could sell it for more margin, and he could sell something the supermarkets didn't have. Uh, and I was just around at that time whilst he was doing it. So as a teenager, I got all this amazing, weird and wonderful and ab- sort of abstract cheeses that were like Blue Lancashire and, you know, Dorset Blue Vinny that would like sort of make oh, your nice. back in stand, up, stand up, you know, that was so strong or whatever. Um, yeah. And so I got into that when I was 12 or 13. But I, he, he'd say to me, you know, taste it out to the customers because they'd say, oh, that cheddar's full of blue cracks. You know, you can't, oh, I can't, I'm not paying that for that. And he'd say, well, taste it. And they'd taste it and go, bloody hell, that's the best cheddar I've eaten. Um, <laughs> you know, and, then, and then he'd go, how much is it? And he'd say, oh, it's a bit more than usual. You know, and he'd charge extra for it. Um, and they'd buy it because they tasted it and they were engaged in it. And he would yeah, talk yeah. about the producers, the farmers he bought them off. Um, and I guess like it just it, that just infected me at an early age, you know, with this sort of passion or enthusiasm. But, but the thing that got me, it wasn't, it wasn't so much my dad's spiel or um, or even like you know, turn up these events and the the enthusiasm. Because it was the fact that everybody tasted something different. So you'd give people a piece of cheese, and somebody would say, oh, "It's too salty. It's too blue. It's too sharp. Oh, I like it like that. Oh, it's just how I want it." You know. And it was this understanding that every cheese has a different customer or a different person. So there's no yeah. good, there's no good or bad cheese, right? There's just cheese that you know that people want to eat, and you can have three people taste the same batch of cheese. Um, and they'll all have a different opinion on what they just tasted. And it still blows me away now if I taste cheese with customers and I'd be fortunate to stand with, you know, what are regarded as the world sort of, you know, cheese professionals or best people in cheese or whatever, you know, yeah. um, the real experts in this. And they stand there and they all taste it and they all, you know, taste different things <laughs> and think different. And it blows me away still now. So it makes it a great, uh, you know, interesting subject. Uh, so I, when I went home after these summer holidays spent trailing around selling cheese out of a trailer, or off a market stall. Um, of course, when I went home, because the family were in cheese, although my mum and dad were divorced, the the the, uh, the sort of attic room was full of old books on cheese. And, you know, my uncle, who used to work on the markets, you know, now and then didn't, you know, I'd sit, end up chatting to him and he'd be like, oh, when we sold cheese, God, it was good fun. And so, like, weirdly, <laughs> I'd, I'd, like, come away from it and then have this downtime where I could, like, immerse myself in sort of, like, cheese theory or, like, Prince, oh, you know, amazing. like, there'd be books Francis book and world atlas on cheese and you know so it was like 14 year old bored kid in my bedroom i'd just read and look at it and thought yeah i'm, I'm into this i like it and of course then opportunities opened up because someone was oh martin's quite interesting cheese oh well we'll just stop off here and we'll meet these 
these guys who are making it and they go, oh, hello, Peter, do you want to come buy some cheese? And so I, I kind of was, was fortunate enough to be like in this position where if we're having shown interest, I could learn about it. Um, okay. And it wasn't so abstract. 14 or 15, I probably fully understood, you know, the sort of basic principles of cheese. You get milk, you start a rennet, yep. which probably a lot of people don't, I guess. So it made it something that was always there. And so when I went to work with my dad as a butcher, uh, when I left school, he uh, he was butchering and selling uh, meat down at Rare Breed, pork and things like that down at Borough Market in London. So I joined in with him, uh, was going to these farmers markets. And of course, inevitably, okay. I'd be stood next to cheesemakers and I'd chat to them and I'd find it fascinating and they would share knowledge or information exchange with me. And, and you know, it was there was just a good supportive kind of crowd around me um who who sort of probably fostered it and encouraged the interest so when i left yeah. working my dad um i literally you know picked up my sort of uh shoes and, and you know apron and headed to the kirkhams and walked straight into a job i think i, I said to graham you know you offered me a job uh is it available he said yeah yeah and i said when can i start and he said well, if you put that apron on you can start now so there was a sort of sense that there was always going to be a job in cheese for me. Yeah, in some ways it was always always meant to be. Yeah. It was always going to happen at some point. Without getting too geeky about farmhouse cheeses, do you have any specific specific farmhouse cheeses that you remember when you were growing up or, or you remember sort of tasting or, or, or since, I suppose, as well, and, and, and any particulars that sort of... Funny, wow. you know, as you said, I'm a northerner. I grew up in Lancashire, you know, but my... my It's funny. So cheese changes, right, over time. You know, people's... Um, you know, like cheese, cheese shifts as cheesemakers have different values or ideas or scale or, you know, um, practices or requirements for their customers, their cheese will change over time. And well, so there's a great quote I like to use, and it's the, the dial, the dial moves, the dial stirs, yet non-perceive it move, right? And it's so true in cheesemaking that little changes happen over time, um, you know, like a sundial and, and nobody sees it. But actually, when you look back, you go, oh, look, it's not the same cheese as it was, right? So, um so you might have a memory of a cheese that 20 years ago, you go, God, I love that cheese. And then you come back and taste it 20 years later and it's, it's nothing like it. You know, it's changed or transformed or, or transitioned to something different. Um, but when I was growing up, Sandham's Lancashire was the, was the Lancashire cheese of choice in our house, you know? Um, and that was all I understood was Lancashire cheese. That was that was the Lancashire cheese. And every other Lancashire I've put near it never tasted that interesting. Of course, my first experience of the Kirkham's Lancashire was these wild out of control farmer things that my dad had bought cheap you know but my mum would buy good quality top you know top of the notch sandoms so i grew up eating sandoms and thinking that was the the real lancashire cheese for me but then when i went to work for the when i stood next to the kirkham's at farmers markets and started tasting different batches and diversity and different you know i realized there was more complexity to that cheese than i'd understood um and then obviously went to make it and spent time on the farm eating it at you know breakfast, dinner and lunch and you know tasting it. So a real affinity for for Kirkham's farmhouse Lancashire cheese. Um but then again, time moves on when you're tasting something every day, when you're privy to tasting every batch, that that changes your perspective on the cheese. You know, there's a real um so yeah, a sense for me that cheese that cheese changes and the dynamic and how closely related you are to it, I think does affect your your senses, you know, you taste that things differently. This episode is being supported by our primary sponsor, Aplan Rural. Why did I want to collaborate with Aplan Rural? Well, having got to know them, their team shares my passion for giving a voice to farmers 
and we are both driven to raise the profile of farming voices to a wider audience. So it seems quite a good fit. Quite frankly, together we will be able to do a lot more. Aplan Rural do a lot of work on social media themselves, sharing farming accounts and farming stories. They have a rural community blog which shares farmers' experiences, and they also support a growing number of initiatives that champion UK farmers, including this podcast. So a big thank you to Aplan Rural for supporting Meet the Farmers. Let's, uh, let's talk about a bit about where you are. So you're on the edge of the lake. Um, tell us about where you are in Cumbria. Yeah, so we are um, so, so the Cartmel Peninsula. So that puts us just outside Cartmel Valley. We are effectively sea level, a uh, little village called Flutebrough or Cark in Cartmel or Cartmel. Um, Cartmel has become well known for Long Plume, Simon Rogan, the very famous three Michelin star chef. Our next door neighbour, you know, he's sort of uh, two miles up the road. He does amazing things. And we were, we're fortunate enough. I think St. James definitely owes some uh, credit to, to you know, to being on Simon Rogan's menu uh, wow. or, you know, being on the cheese board, should we say, for, you know, for a good 10 or 15 years, you know. So a long time we've been uh, selling cheese and it's been appearing on his cheese board and having his sommeliers and oh, um, you know, in front of the house waxing lyrical about the virtues of, of their local cheese. So I think that means that we've been in... Um, in the minds of lots of chefs over the years, you know, um, right. like do a stage or people that come and do a stint at the front of the house and then move to open another, another restaurant. So I think that's given us definitely a place on fine dining, you know, part of the part of our success, I guess, or, or exposure for being such a small scale cheese is that we've we've been on, you know, on uh, the cheese board for these two, three Michelin star restaurants now for for a good period of time. So I think that, yeah, it's been helpful having him up the road for sure. You know, yeah. Yeah. And and tell us about the farm um, itself. So you you, you so farm, mostly sheep, but you also now have goats as well. Yeah, yeah, so we were twenty acres, and then just literally the year uh, the year of COVID, we'd signed a, a new tenancy to to expand us to seventy acres, and that happened yeah. in January twenty twenty. Uh, and then we obviously had COVID twenty twenty. Uh, sorry, uh, March twenty twenty. But we suddenly expanded our grazing, and yet we had no sales for cheese. So we suddenly sort of going, oh, we haven't got any cheese, but we've got this grazing. And we've been we've been grazing twenty acres, and ca- trying to grow our numbers of sheep without really understanding how we we're going to manage, you know, where we were going to grow to, uh, but trying to trying to secure and source more gra- grazing locally. So we were sort of ready to push the sheep numbers up, or we had pushed the sheep numbers up in expectation of this new land. Um, but when COVID hit, we suddenly didn't need all this milk, so we sort of. Uh, effectively I, I i like to refer to it, we kicked the sheep out you know we pretty much moved them out of the shed um and went to a really extensive system uh because we had loads of grazing and not much demand for cheese so we're like okay let's see if we can you know be way more extensive it was thankfully just at the start of the season when covid kicked in um so we ended up with a lot of sheep outdoors that would have been sort of part in the shed and part outside so lots of empty space in the shed um and that or in the sheds and that gave us an idea that we could take on a herd of goats uh we didn't we, we hadn't we had considered it a year before when mary holbrook passed um her goats came up for sale but at the time we just weren't ready for it and we didn't have the space and for one thing or another um so the idea had been sort of there but we hadn't really we weren't ready to do it so a year later when we spoke to joe and amy uh bennett who were making innis cheese they told us they decided to make a decision to pack up and that their goats would be for sale. Um, and we've been talking to them about buying some equipment from them. Uh, but when we went to look at the equipment, there was just this sort of niggling idea that maybe we should buy the goats right. and make yeah. some of the cheese making. Um, so we, good or for right, rightly or wrongly, we decided in the middle of COVID we'd do that. But the, the <laughs> decision they'd made was, was, for their own personal reasons, had to be quite quick. So 
they sort of had made the decision and basically were like, in six weeks' time, there'll be no goats on the farm. Uh, So by the time we'd heard about it and made our decision, there was like sort of three weeks for us to to accommodate 300 goats, you know, as many as we'd like. So not how many of those goats or which ones we wanted, we bought them all um, and virtually all the contents of their dairy and equipment um, and moved them to Holker Farm. And they were being milked in the morning and they got milked in the evening, you know, in Staffordshire, and they got milked in the evening at Holker Farm. Uh, you know, on the day they were all sort of arrived and delivered. And it was chaos, I have to say. It was absolute <laughs> carnage. Uh, but, you know, the kids weren't at school because it was, it was COVID and the customers weren't ringing us up. So, you know, we kind of felt like we had all this extra time and sort of... Uh, it's probably freedom. the best time to do it. Yeah, exactly. There was a sense that we had the, the time and the space and the mental energy to do it because we weren't doing anything else, you know. Um, so, so yeah, so we took them on and the intention was we would make hard cheeses with it. Uh, sort of you know experimental hard cheese that we could put on the shelf for a few months and then of course covid will be over in september um and things will return back to normal and we would make you know little lactic goat cheeses so obviously two you know two years later the world's still well it's never going back is it but i mean uh covid never really finished so we never actually got into the soft cheese production until a, a year and a half later okay. before we really started trialing the little lactic soft cheeses which is what we bought them for um and i've said that ingot which is a uh, a play on words because the Innis brick was a was one of their cheeses, um, okay. and we're making it here. So we decided we'd call it Ingot because they're like nice. Ingot, yeah, gold brick. Um, so we started making Ingot in 2021, late 2021, um, and I would say we're just we're getting them to the point where we want them now. You know, and we're in March 2023, so that's been a, a much more sort of extended, longer sort of exaggerated um, play than we thought it would be. We thought we'd be further on a bit sooner if that makes sense but it's been it's been interesting because we've had all this goats milk to to worry about to think about we've had time to accommodate the goats to the farm a lot of the original goats that came are probably gone now but they'd sort of started breeding towards a smaller um, sort of more mixed breed goat a golden guernsey cross so they're like a dark you know sort of head colored um you know horned goat that's quite small in frame and not overly productive in terms of milk yield but like really good thick rich constituents in the milk um, and we've transitioned to a lot of those. So we've got a lot of these smaller sort of what I'd call, you know, yeah, crossbred goats. That's the bulk of the herd now. So whereas when they came, it was still sort of partly a commercial herd with these sort of new, uh, you know, smaller animals being mixed in, if you like. You know, they were like, th- I think they were three years into a program to sort of shift that herd into a, a more cheesemaker herd, if you like. So um, okay. it's good because two years on, that's that's what the our main herd is comprised of these little neat, you know, kind of uh, golden Guernsey cross goats, which is what we yeah. wanted. Just bringing this back onto the cheese again, when you're, so when the goats come on, I'm just, I'm just fascinated with the sort of, when you're designing a new cheese, when you're coming up with a concept for a new cheese, how creative is it? How scientific is it? How do you go about that? And, and do, again, not knowing anything about it at all, I love eating cheese, but that's about as much as my cheese knowledge goes, with different goats milk, react differently therefore how, how does it work just just in very simple terms talk me through the process so i mean i've, I've heard it described as a, you know cheesemaker as an art and i don't particularly like that you know um I've, I've heard it decided as a science and i don't particularly like that either and i think the best description you know it's a craft so the craft yeah. is sort of like somewhere between art and science you've got to you've got to understand both ends of it you've got to appreciate the art history of of producing something really special, you know, for the kind of cheeses we make anyway, um, you know, something really beautiful, one-off tasting flavor, but also you've got to understand how that works behind the scenes, like the, you know, the acidity, the salt, the moisture, what's going on there. Um, so I think that's, that's a good description in terms of setting about creating a new cheese. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, 
how can I put it? Um, you know, if every every cheese in the world, you know, you begin with milk, starter cultures, rennet and salt. That's everything from Parmesan to, you know, the freshest cheese you can think of. They, they're all somewhere on the spectrum. So it is very much in the hands of the cheesemaker what you can do to develop a recipe. That said, there's certain things about like animals and character and what's in the milk in the first instance, uh, which is yeah. what my Nuffield took me on was the question really I posed for my Nuffield was what makes great milk, right? If you want to make great cheese and you talk yeah. to cheesemakers, they go, well, the thing is we've got great milk. That's why our cheese is great, you know? And I went around <laughs> what's the great milk? With the different farms and going, you know, so what is it? And they were like, well, the thing is we've just got great milk, you know? And I was like, great. <laughs> And I realized they're all milk producing milk differently, different cows, different herds, different farms. And they would all they would never agree on any one thing. You find farmers who can agree on what great milk is, you know, and I'll, you can you can have an award. But there is this sense that what is great milk for cheese making? But I, I guess what I'm sorry, learned, I'm, I'm, I'm literally going to ask every on the on the yeah. quite podcast. I'm going to ask every farmer who comes on that that question now. What is great milk? It's a great, great question. Well, that was my yeah, and it was. And of course, it's a question that even after all these years, I'm still not sure I can answer. But what I what I came to was, um, you know, looking at like uh, the, the grazing systems. So you can't have a you can have a you know extensive grazing system, and you can't put a herd of you know 200 Holsteins out onto a hillside with the most extensive grazing system and expect those cows to produce any sort of milk or any or even probably survive. To be honest, so you realize that you know. Dairy animals have to be adapted to the kind of system, the farming systems where they are presented. So if you are in, you know, on a big flat land in, I don't know, Cheshire or whatever, you know, and there's lots of arable around you, you can have big, high yielding, you know, milky cows that that will produce off whatever the cheapest feed stock is on that's on hand, right? But if you're up some hillside in Wales or Cumbria or Scotland, you know, and it rains and the road up your track is five miles long. And when you get to the end of it, you know, it's just a, a, a farmyard, you know, with a river running through the middle of it. The idea that you're going to import lots of cheap uh, surplus food into that system and feed it to high yielding cows, it's it's kind of nuts, right? So you go, the yeah. good farming systems are ones that are suited to their, to their surroundings, their climate. So I suppose that means that good milk comes from animals that are, you know, that are, that support their their system around them too, right? Because you've got animals yeah, that can yeah. make use of whatever that is. So, but then you look at that, you go, well, that means the species of animals is really key to the farming system. So then you realize that different animals do produce different milk. So it's not that a dairy shorthorn's milk is any better than a Holstein cow's milk. It's just that you're never going to be able to produce the same milk from a Holstein cow that you will from a dairy shorthorn if you put that dairy shorthorn in the right place. Um, so it's this, like, this this idea that actually there's loads of different systems producing milk um, and what makes better milk is, you know, your end customer, what that milk's designed for, where it's going, I guess. So if you want to milk, if you want to make complex, interesting cheeses with diversity of flavor um, and you want to do it sustainably in the Lake District, you're going to probably need an old fashioned breed of cow. Um, you know, with with a farmer who's got a keen eye on conservation, you know, or or a small breed of goat that's going to be able to be nimble and is going to be able to walk around the rocky, you know, sort of limestone of Holker Estates and in and out of the woodland. You know, these are these are things that we we need to accommodate. So, but of course, there's always compromise because people are looking for yield. They've got bills to pay. So there's this sense that like the direction of travel is we want to get the best milk we can from the farm where we are. And so that's that's I guess for us we looked at goats. We didn't want to have big high yielding. Um, you know, white sort of dairy sarn and goats that were going to produce, you know, eight liters of milk a day because we wouldn't be 
be able to feed them. We wouldn't know where to buy the feed. We wouldn't be able to source it. You know, it's like we want goats that might produce less, but perhaps they can do it from grazing, you know, the hedgerows and the verges and the woodlands around our farm. So that was for us why we were excited by the the sort of breeding program of the Innis goats because they were going in the direction of travel that we wanted. You know, our sheep are Lacan sheep. So, all right, they they, they originate from Aviron. Okay. Um, but they're keen great. They've got strong, hardy feet. For a milking sheep breed, they're about as strong on their feet as you'll get. Um, yeah. And that matters to us because they're walking around sort of pasture, soils, you know, they're, they're in and out of gateways. So you need a sort of a, a resilience in this animal. Um, you know, so that, that was something that we... Yeah, that we looked at was some of the fact that they can make the most from pasture. Again, they're not just going to be have to shovel lots of bought-in feed into them. Again, because of our location, there is no giant bakery business or brewery business down the road that we can import loads of cheap feedstock from. Um, so that that means that we have to make it from pasture, right? And that pasture is diverse and it's fairly seasonal. So our system is suited to that. So I, I suppose the question, what is great milk? And then the question is, well, is this going to make the best cheese though? Becomes the question. So we started looking at um systems that were making really great cheese so i went to visit uh andy uh, hatch up in um up in wisconsin and he's this unknown dairy farmer in wisconsin internationally in cheese he's so well known and respected makes phenomenal right. cheese world-class cheeses right and his his farming system scotty who runs the farm is just run amazing sort of new zealand sort of focus but with a lot of um you know sort of herbaceous herbal herbal lays and things like that going on lots of stuff going on really clever farming and in Wisconsin, you know, the bar down the road were like, who? And they knew every farmer, but they didn't know Andy Hatch. <laughs> you know, they, he was so different and so outlandish that they were like, oh, yeah. we just thought that land had been abandoned, you know, like relatively <laughs> like, huge, big sort of soy and corn crops, you know, monocultures that were going around on around them. Um, but, you know, you looked at his cheese was amazing. The flavor was there, but the diversity in the sward, the type of cows they were keeping meant that they could graze those animals, move them around. And really, to me, they were making the most of their farm um you know f- for animals and it, yeah and it comes to inequality but of course give the best milk to someone and if the cheesemaker is not focused they're not always going to make the best cheese right so there's a sort of point where going back to how do you design a cheese it needs to be achievable by the people who are making it i suppose and the skills at the skill level um we're going to struggle to compete with the french in terms of quality lactic style goat's cheeses it's always going to be a struggle you know it's like just like a you know I'm sure someone like Stacey at Tunworth will attest that it's been a challenge to compete with the French to make a, a camembert-style cheese, you know, when there's people in Normandy make 10 times as much as her um, and they're still des- described as artisan and small scale. So there's a sense that it, it makes sense in some respects to make cheddar if you're in Somerset because that's the home of that. That's where you're going to find skills and uh, attributes. But in Cumbria, we don't have we don't have a cheesemaking uh, history really or if we did it's gone such a long time ago so we, we've got a sense that we can be quite flexible we can play around but we're never going to be able to um produce something to the specialized uh you know sort of like industrial quality of something like a camembert or a, something like that so saint james was this fluid idea when we began with saint james we said let's just let the milk express what it does make something that we're interested in styles of cheese we like to eat styles of cheese that for us uh, get us excited something that really gives a lot of flavor out especially when it's young because we're new farmers and cheesemakers we don't have a lot of cash flow so saint james is born out of necessity like let's just make some cheese that's interesting to us and sell it and we'll see where the cheese goes so there's a real sort of fluid kind of angle to it and 15 years later we still start the season we're like right how do we want this to begin how does how do we want the season to start what the kind of cheese is and we'll talk about you know what time you use it how far are we from easter what's the demand looking like who's excited about it who's you know who's going to open with a bang and really shout about saint james and that'll affect, you know, how quickly the cheese is mature in the earliest sense, um, 
how many sheep we've actually lambed. You know, how many, how much cheese have we got to sell in that first month? If we've got a lot of cheese to sell, maybe we're not going to sell all the first month's cheese straight out of the bat. So maybe we make it just keep a little bit longer. Uh, but if we know that, well, the first cheeses are sold the minute they, they, you know, they hit the scales, then um, there's a sense that we can make some of it ripens a bit faster. It's a bit more oozing, a bit more flowing. So, so we do sort of play around with St. James. It is, you know, it's the idea is it's, it's an expression of our milk on any one given day at one time of year. Uh, we make seven days a week. Um, so there is no, I would say there's there's minimal design in that process. We didn't set about to make uh, a, a sort of a cheese there. Now with other cheese like the Ingot, we did. We have a kind of uh, an idea in our head of what that cheese should be. It should be a lactic style. It should be 240 grams. It should be uh, a nice neat geotrike and rhyme, preferably with not too many blue spots on the outside. It should be sort of creamy and yogurty in the center of the paste, and it should be breaking down on the edge without running and with the rhymes falling off. So the sense that we have an idea and a vision for that, and it's probably more um, sort of, I guess, more typical of what people would think of as a goat's cheese, and it's probably more defined. So that makes it more challenging to hit that because we've got to work that a bit harder. We can't just say, well, it is what it is, you know. Um, so our frustration yeah. with that cheese is that we don't hit what, what, you know, if you set out a clear vision of what you should be making, then, of course, there's lots of frustration goes with that where you go, well, it's not what we said we'd make. So, you know, whereas with St. Yeah. James, is kind of like, hey, that's good. <laughs> it's nothing <laughs> like we made before, but we like it so we can sell it, you know, uh, whereas that wasn't the case with some of these other cheeses we're looking at. So, um, yeah, so that's designing nice, a cheese that's nice. what you're going to do. You've got the milk you've got, like I say, you've got the quantity of milk you have available. Or how special, how rare and unusual is that milk, I guess. So those things play, you know, like if we make the weirdest, most expensive cheese in the world, fine. Are we going to sell any of it? Who's going to buy it? Where are we going to send it to? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think then then it just comes to basic tools. As a cheesemaker, you play with acidity, start culture, salt, uh, moisture, like how you work the vat and temperature in the vat. So there's a sort of a, let's say, a sort of mechanical or sort of driven, like an, an understood process to how to make a soft cheese versus how to make a hard cheese. Yeah. Um, you know that comes with learning and cheese making experience so um and that's what we play with also what tools have we got if we can't press because we don't have a cheese press then we might skirt around and make a cheese slightly differently whereas we might go we'd like it to be hard well we can't press it because we don't have cheese presses so maybe we make it a hard cheese slightly differently so um, yeah knowing what tools insights that's really interesting we will we'll we'll go on to talk about your enough field but it does run it rather feels like which might even be the uh so many titles I could name this podcast, but um, yeah, other than moving around around the cheesemakers, but it sounds a bit like the quest of the Holy Grail. It's like what is the what is the what is the best the best milk in the world? Yeah, I mean that, that that I think that's what it became after going to different farms. I ended up shortening that title. You know, I sort of thought this is what it's about. Is the so the prevalence and importance of indigenous microbial communities was about. My understanding that raw milk makes the best cheese, right? That's how I was driven. Like raw milk, yep. it's got to be raw milk. That's the best yep. cheese. And then you go, I've tasted some pretty average raw milk cheeses. Um, and I've tasted some really great pasteurized cheeses. Um, so you go, well, maybe it's not just that. But actually, yeah, by and large, what's going on at a microbial level in that cheese makes it, to me, makes it really interesting. Um, and I think that's where I was at in my point of my learning, was I really wanted to get to grips with what made good raw milk cheeses great, you know, and what made what we could do on our farm to increase the quality or improve the quality of our raw milk. So if you said about the idea that raw milk means that you're not going to pasteurize the milk before you make cheese, all the microbes that come from the farm on the animal's teeth surface or the other, or that are on the farm or in the air, they're going to end up in your cheese, right? So that's that's great. And that's raw milk, that's diversity. But then how do you make sure that you're farming to get the best ones present, right? Because I mm. suppose at the time, as you, you might improve your milking parlor, you go, we've put a new milking parlor in. 
Uh, we put a new teak cleaning procedure in. We've concreted a yard outside, you know, like various different things that farmers just do, right? They do it because they're improving their farm or their working practices or whatever. But how much of that then goes against this notion of diversity or microbial diversity in the middle? And it was understood if my, my worry was that we see uh, improvement or progress and as you try and improve or progress, you actually sort of, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. You lose you lose the, the essence of what made a cheese special. And it was for me trying to understand how could we grow our business and evolve our business forwards and not lose the thing that made our raw milk special. So what what did I need to do was what the question I was posing really to be able to expand and to grow from the scale where we are, but without losing the thing that made it special. And also to be able to share that information and talk with some certainty when other cheesemakers ask me the same question, you know, what does it matter? What does it mean? Um, so that that was driving enough of it. But I realized at the end of it, I just ended up talking to people and saying, uh, I just want to know how farming affects cheese. Right. <laughs> and they go, oh, right, okay, that makes sense. You know, because most people just like their eyes are glaze over when I told them what I wanted to know. Um, but in the end, I, I realized that's what it was, actually. How does farming affect cheese? You know, and so and it, it taught me a lot of lessons about, you know, like, yeah, some some somebody might make raw milk cheese for you know, a long period of time. And then suddenly they go, you know, we've got a scale and my son wants to be in the business or this wants to, or we've, you know, the farm down the road's come up for sale. So we've, we're we're making cheese less often, so we're pasteurizing it now. And that's enabled us to to cut our resources or, you know, somebody died and then we had nobody to do that delivery run. So we realized, so the, you realize that the whole farm actually has an influence. It's, it's too simplistic to just say, oh, everyone should make with raw milk all the time. Um, and then you should just be able to grow that because it's a real sort of uh, devotion to make raw milk cheese it takes a lot of control and not all farms are suitably scaled to 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 um, to exact that control on their milk at all times. So there's a sense that sometimes pasteurized milk made better cheeses because, um, you know, there was there wasn't the attention to detail in certain areas or actually maybe okay. the attention was there. Simply they didn't have um, the, you know, the labor to make cheese seven days a week or six days a week. And there was. I met people who had made this sort of in their in my mind huge compromise because they had this awesome milk that would have been ideal for raw milk cheese, and they'd say, "Yeah, but we just make cheese three days a week, and it's pasteurized because we're storing the milk up, and sometimes we only make one or two days a week." And I was going, "Ah, oh, you know, this awesome raw milk is so special," and they were like, "Yeah, but you know, we've got two young kids, and so and so has to manage it." And then I'd meet the cheesemaker, and they're like, "Yeah, I've got a life too, and I have to work on this farm." And, you know, I go to the farmer's market and I sell it and that's part of my job and I can't be at the market and in the dairy. And so there was a realize that actually there's a ton of smart moves where it meant that people were going, yeah, we we make what I would have called compromises, but really they weren't. They were just business decisions or, or businesses or even farming decisions that, you know, it's harvest. We don't want to be in the dairy seven days a week when we're trying to make hay. We'd rather just bulk that milk up and make two days, you know, and make something different for those two days. And that, I think... It gave. It, I feel like my Nuffield gave me permission to come back and make changes to my cheese making business that served my farming better. Rather than before, I was very driven, as you can tell, very passionate about cheese. I felt there were certain standards and compromises I couldn't make in my cheese making business because that would be like selling out or compromising. And of course, when I looked more closely, all the compromises were at the farm level. You know, there were me not going to a a farming conference to learn about something or they wouldn't be not going to like say cart bales on the right day when I should have been or subcontracting out farm work to other people that I should have been okay. doing myself, you know? So there was, um, yeah, there was a sense that my Nuffield was really, uh, useful for me to actually, to give me, it felt like it gave me permission to, to do things my way, you know, and to not beat myself up if I made 
sort of so-called compromises, you know. While we're on the Nuffield, um, can you tell us the story of the cheesemaking nun? I, I can't yeah. even remember where I heard this story, but I want to hear it again from you. The US is where I'd seen all of the research coming from. So whilst there's a lot of research in Spain, France, Europe, I felt like they were on my doorstep. So I'd go to the US first, learn what I could there, come back and then follow up in Europe. Uh, the timing of my of my Nuffield. When, when I came back to do my European end of it, we the European end of it ended up being COVID year. So I didn't get to do as much travel in Europe as I had. Um, but being close proximity to Europe, we, we get a lot of this research anyway, or you get to hear a certain amount of it. Um, but the US stuff I found interesting. They were studying cheese microbes at Harvard. You know, They were looking at things in a very different way. So I went out and spent time with a company, Jasper Hill Sellers, uh, and they offered to actually sort of uh, put me on for a few weeks whilst I spent time in their caves and cellars. But I used Vermont right. as a sort of um, off point, you know, so uh, to move around. And as I was traveling around the US, certain people's names cropped up and certain ideas. And I'd, I'd sort of come across this idea of uh, Sister Noella. And she is a, um, yeah, a nun who makes in a wooden cheese vat. So part of yeah. my microbial studies were about how wood can be used in cheese making. Um, because wood actually can be used in cheesemaking process, but it's not commonly used in commercial dairy, certainly not in the UK or not at all, really. But yet there was a lot of work done on wooden shelves and how wooden shelves have been good for cheese, good for maturation. Um, under the Food Safety Modernization Act, under Obama, there was a big sort of recall of cheeses who were, who were stored on wooden boards. And as a result, the international cheese community came together to prove the science of how cheese could be stored on wooden boards. So there was this sort of, um, that happened before my Nuffield, but it had highlighted the importance and the value of wood in terms of preserving microbes in the cheese facility and premises and how they could be safe if managed correctly and actually even improve safety in some cases because they're already inoculated with the right molds and yeast you know? um so the wood idea would be interesting but there's parts of france and italy where they actually use wooden cheese vats so that's putting raw milk straight into a wooden cheese vat and it's what's impregnated in the wall of the vat you know even after cleaning the microbes that remain actually become the starter culture for the next batch of milk so this was commonplace again in you know in um, Sicily, uh, Sardinia, and it's commonplace in the south of France where they make Salers cheese traditionally like this, it wooden girls. But again, in sort of the US and the UK, this is a long way from what's you know seen as practical or even safe. Um, so having heard that Sister Noella was making this cheese in a wooden vat in a convent, um, and also that Dennis D'Amico at uh, University of Connecticut had been studying the vat and had right. done some research on it. I made the time to visit Connecticut to talk with Dennis D'Amico, and uh, he sort of, or, or Sister Noella were affording me the time to go and spend a night in the, well, the, the farmhouse next to the convent um, and go and visit her nuns where they were milking That's these it. sort of uh, belted black and white cows and making cheese and milk every day. In, in a little wooden vat, a little cheese she calls Bethlehem, and then she stores it in a little cellar uh, under the convent and um, matures them. But the amazing thing is this nun who was in her 70s uh, had done a, a PhD in microbiology as part of her sort of, she'd wow. gone away to do it um, and had studied and referenced and catalogued every strain of geotrichum that she could find in, in the south of France in the Auvergne region. So she'd been to wow. the Auvergne where they make sand nectar and she'd studied geotrichum and she catalogued and referenced them. And then she'd come back and was making this cheese in her cellar. So this completely abstract authority on cheese you know is is exists and lives in a, in a very uh gracious very sharing with her information very inspiring uh it, one of the great bits of that the bit that I, of the whole thing the most memorable part which is uh, kind of embarrassing actually how childlike my brain is was she just sat me on a stool in a what was what had been the convent sort of schoolroom. she sat me on a stool and and had me looking at cheese uh, uh cheese mite the little crawly <laughs> cheese mite 
under a microscope, you know, and I was just sort of sat there like a child, <laughs> just right, like sort of awestruck going, what am I doing here? I'm in a coffin with a nun looking at cheese mites under a microscope for the first time in my career. I was actually looking at them moving around. Uh, and again, for a cheese nerd like me, that was just amazing. But I think that it, it's, it, it reminds you that, you know, for all the science, all the enthusiasm, all the, the technical stuff, like it's it's a living, breathing product cheese and it comes from our soils, it comes from our farming and you know, it's it's easy to get excited about taste, flavor. You know, it's it's a it's a real thing, right? You know, it's something we can all yeah. engage in at any level. There's something for everyone in cheese. Just a little more about our primary sponsor, Aplan Rural. They provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates. This could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture. So for more information, visit aplan.co.uk forward slash rural. That's aplan.co.uk forward slash rural let's mention nicola because um it's very very much about her as well you 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 met at school so i mean did she when when did her when did her cheese interest start was it just was it it as a direct result as you was it was it that romantic uh, nicola was into animals i guess she's driven by she just loved animals always wanted to work with animals you know um and i think we again we we both left school um you know didn't really sort of finish up our studies um we're kind of child we're both a bit childlike in our approach to stuff we like things that and if something makes us laugh or something if we want to do something we want to do something so the idea of like let's move to somerset milk goats and make cheese we were like yeah that sounds like a good idea and nicola was like yeah that sounds great let's do that so there's a sense that we've just followed what we wanted to do. And it, it's, I'd make, it's not easy, you know, doing what we do. We farm, we run a business, we employ staff, we've been through a pandemic now. Now we're going through, you know, price hikes of all the commodities, all our inputs are going through the roof. What we do is really difficult, but I suppose it's like there's some people who are just unemployable. And I would say that Nicola and I fit in that category of we are unemployable. We like to follow our passions and whatever, whatever interests us, that's what you'll find us doing generally is following up on stuff that we're interested in. Um, so the animals drove Nicola, Nicola and I. We, we were at a slight uh, disagreement on the goats. Personally, I would have liked to work with other farmers who produce milk and really use our strength as cheesemakers, which is what we've been doing more recently. We work with James Robinson, who's a, a de- organic dairy farmer where we buy cow's milk from. Um, he's just up the road from us. Um, I wanted to do more of that, but Nicola wanted more animals. So we ended up with the goats. The compromise was that as long as we, you know, Nicola committed to never doing an evening milking, um, so that you know, we would have a team work with us to do the milking, just so they didn't completely consume our lives yeah, uh, yeah. milking two hundred animals. So that was the that was the sort of compromising deal. Goats were driven largely by Nicholas, you know, interest in animals uh, and and that side of things. So we've been such a long time together. We moved around together. People know me in the business because I mean, partly because I'm I tend to incline more on the social media, on Instagram and yeah. Twitter. They were set up in my name, so it'll be Martin Gott, St. James Cheese, you know, but it's not yeah. really, it's not massive ego-centric, you know, kind of maniac. It's just actually because that's how they got set up. So people do kind of associate me with St. James. But yeah, Nicholas, as you know, she's the business. Definitely both of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's sort of fill in a little bit more of the story. I'm just interested in your your time, I suppose, your, when, when you were learning, um, so both in Lancashire and in Somerset as well. Can you just pull out some some of the sort of highlights from that time? Yeah, I mean, Lancashire was was great because it was a cheesemaking job, you know. So I, I was keen to learn about the farming aspect of it. So whilst like my, my dad kept pigs, I had no like practical experience of dairy farming. Um, so the Kirkhams was a great place for me to to go to. And at that point, they were still making a very small dairy that was almost like an annex to the house. You know, it was just across the yard from the farmhouse. And all the farm, like uh, Ruth Kirkham and John Kirkham, would sit down for breakfast with me and Graham Kirkham. And it was a very much just a family farm that made cheese. 
Um, and whilst I was there, they were transitioning to building a new dairy, which I think probably professionalised something that, that was due to happen as well. But also as John and Ruth were heading towards retirement age, inevitably, you know, they don't, I don't well, I don't know if they wanted to or not, but the, the whole farm would sit down to have breakfast in their kitchen. Maybe they were getting to a point <laughs> where uh, there would have to be some separation. So I was there at a time for me, I think that was really uh, really useful for me because I got to understand a lot more about farming than I would on any other cheese making job. If I'd gone to work in a dairy and I'd gone to work at the Kirkham's now, I'd be in the dairy, likely not in the farm kitchen talking about the quality of the silage or the weather or what the cows are doing yep. today. Um, partly because of my interest, in, I guess, practical nature, um, I would get involved where I could, you know, when the time allowed, I'd get involved with, you know, a bit of silage making and, you know, moving dry cows and you know, unloading yep. straw. Or whatever. So there was, I kind of was right in the way that situation was. I was kind of at the heart in, in the center of their business to be able to see enough of what was going on around me. Um, so that, that helped me hugely because I got to understand dairy farming. I got to do some milking. I got to do bits of all the sort of farm jobs and see it from over but wasn't deep in it and it wasn't my responsibility by any stretch. So, um, so it was a good entry sort of into the industry uh, and made a lot of cheese. You know, I made cheese six days a week for you know, 18 months or whatever, fairly long shifts. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was a great place for me to learn, great place for me to get into cheese making. And honestly, I think it, it I, you know, it helped cement my sort of love and passion of the cheese making industry, the people that came through that farm, the positivity around that that farm and that business and the people in it, you know, whether it be customers or, um, you know, the, the family themselves. It was just a really good you know, entry point into the industry, I think. Um, I realized that being there, I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to set up my own cheese making business. And I realized that it was almost too comfortable being at the Kirkham. You know, I could still be there now. If I lived down the road, I, I probably would be. I'd have just, um, <laughs> you know, just... <laughs> pottering around in the back of the here you know, the, the cheese room Kirkham's <laughs> and being quite content about it but yeah, there was a uh, sense oh there's melted yeah I was just a bit probably too content really for a young sort of guy with ambition so I um, I saw a need to do something on my own uh, we looked at buying milking sheep and setting up nearby um, and then bizarrely through a chance meeting I took some time off and of course went to visit cheesemakers with my with my time off with my uh, my week's holiday um, and I went to visit Charles Martel down this, uh, down in Gloucester I went to visit Mary Holbrook and Charlie Westhead and um, it was Mary's farm that just kind of it just got me thinking and inspired me about how different it was you know she was a cheesemaker didn't even have a cheese vat there was just tubs and tanks of milk you know it's kind of pottering around in a dairy which after being stood at a cheese vat you know sort of every day at the Kirkham's for, for a year or whatever it suddenly occurred to me like hey there's another way of doing this that's different mm -hmm. again um, and so when I came back, I told, I kept in touch with Mary and she basically told me that she was going to pack up the farm and sell it um, because she couldn't find anyone to make cheese um, and milk her goats. And I was, just came back and was like this awesome farm, you know, out of the way in the middle of nowhere with all this cool stuff going on. And again, a similar sort of positive vibe and energy to it, you know, yeah. um, and I can't pack up, surely not. You know, there's too much to learn there and too much going on. So I called her up and said, if I came and milk your goats, and got involved with the cheese making you know would you would you consider it and could you know have you got somewhere for us to live and she said yeah you can live in the house with me you know um and you know uh, you know start start this this week sort of thing right. you know, same sort of thing start when you've worked to notice so so nicola and I, I talked to nicola about it she she liked the idea um we moved to somerset and you know then we began working with mary which was entirely different but there I think the funny thing was that we we were like, this is Mary's farm and we're going to milk goats. And when we got there, she was like, right, I'm off to London now for, <laughs> you know, for four weeks or whatever. And there was a sense we were like, okay, <laughs> swim. You're like, there's your goats, you know, now you know how to milk them. Uh, you get on with it. You know? um, so it was, we, we sort of, 
we were we were more than just you know sort of milkers we we basically got handed the job uh pretty yeah. you know instantly of like here's some goats to manage and here's a farm to deal with uh, there you go you know which again was was really useful because we both had loads of energy and enthusiasm so we just took it as like yeah you give us some chance and some responsibility we'll take it we'll take it all um and to the point where you know six months later i think you know the farm was just feeling and and different and i I don't know mary sort of found it really inspiring and interesting again and she was spending more and more time at the farm which was really lovely initially and then eventually it was like that that initial responsibility and that full ownership we'd been given started to be eroded a little bit as mary like realized how much she enjoyed the farm herself and suddenly we were back like we're sharing a farm or we're working for somebody again you know and we'd almost had like so much freedom in the early stages yeah you've had a taste of it yeah exactly that once we had a taste of it and we realized again we're like okay we're we're slowly coming back to the same point where we're, we're still working for other people here um, and working really hard for other people and not to take anything away from that we just we wanted to be in control of our own decisions and um, you know our own destinies or life I guess or whatever so we started looking for places to move to and by that point it was it was a savage so Mary come to terms with the fact that people could she could have someone work for her so she she we, we hired our own replacement you know for to, so somebody else came after us and then somebody else came after that and somebody else came after that and actually over a period of you know the next 10 years or whatever loads of people from the cheese business sort of followed us and and spent stints working at Mary's and did a season or did 12 months and then went off and did their own thing That's or sick. So there's a sort of there is a league of cheesemakers and people out there who spent time at Mary's yeah, real training making, ground. Yeah, yeah. So it's, and I suppose you know maybe we open the door for that to happen, or um, you know that, that's how I see it. We we open the door for it to happen, but it created again this opportunity, kept that business going, and um, you know kept her interested and inspired enough to keep teaching people because Mary did really. She taught people in her own way. I, I feel like she never gave me a lesson once, but I, every day she was teaching me something. Um, you know, I'd stand with her making cheese and I'd try and watch her and she'd almost wait till I left the room to do something, you know, and I'd come back in and I'm like, what did you do? She'd be like, well, you know. <laughs> so there was a sense where it's always like she was difficult to learn from, but what I learned <laughs> working with her, you know, she was, and she was, again, she was childlike, I would say, in her approach to business and life. She, she did stuff because she wanted to, because she thought it was a good idea. Right. Certain degree of impulsiveness with, with the responsibility behind it but there was a sense that well i'm doing that because i want to you know because i think it's a good idea and, and, and i've got permission to do it off myself not nobody else yeah. so she was she was just, fun um, to work, you know very yeah, inspired just, just, just bringing this back to sheep um how, how big is sheep daring in the uk it's I mean, what, 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 how many businesses roughly are there do you know so uh sheep's milk uk is a local business that like uh tours that, that sort of collects sheep's milk from other you know, from from lots of sheep farms and then sells it on the a kind of cooperative model. But I think that they handle about four or five million liters of milk a year, something like that. And I would say once you take that out of the equation, the rest smalls, you know, is is a small volume of milk. So they're, they're tiny. Sheep's sheep's not daring is is tiny relatively, but there is there is the sort of bones of an industry there. You know, there is an industry milking sheep, um, but it's it's you know certainly less. I would say less than fifty farmers. You know, uh, milking yeah. sheep in Europe. I think it's it's one of those things that's earmarked to grow as people have looked at you know alternatives to do different things with pasture uh, they suit system for us it it was actually at the time when i started looking you still had to buy milk quota to milk cows in the uk um mm-hmm. so cows kind of we looked at initially dairy shorthorns or other sort of you know rare breeds of cows or, or just alternative breeds but actually at the time milk quota was was all the money we had we'd have had to buy five grams of the quota and we bought our first milk sheep flock for like five grand so we made right. it an easy decision and they were smaller nicola was more comfortable with them having that other background with cows um smaller ruminants and so and again mary sort of 
Mary's opportunity created that opportunity for us to do sheep. Uh, Mary had sheep first for a lot of years and then sold her sheep flock. Right. So we knew moving there that there was an opportunity to milk sheep. That was part of the deal. If we milked her goats, could we buy and start up a flock of sheep? Um, and we, you know, we had no cash. Nicola and I both worked. I worked as a butcher for my dad on you know, less than minimum wage. Nicola worked in pubs and as a dental nurse for you know minimum wage. Um, we saved a little bit of cash because we worked two jobs, you know. Um, and so we started in farming with no capital, no background, no family money, you know. Um, so there was a sense that we needed to get into something that was cheap. And when we moved to Mary's, we rented grazing by the week. She, she'd say, right, well, you know, there's some wow. grass down there. Why don't you put your sheep there? And at the end of the week, she'd total what she, you know, what we owed them. We'd pay her by the <laughs> week and we shared things like the feed. We'd buy her so many kilos of feed out of the feed hopper and pay her for that. So she did. She gave us that start that, you know, that, that a lot of farmers' children get, ironically. That's, that's actually what you realise, like, my my son now keeps Belly Galloway's on my farm, and I'm like trying to top up what he owes me for grazing. I'll never get the money, but you know, there's a sense <laughs> that they you get a permission to use the resource of the farm, right? You know, but if you're not in a from a farming background, you're not on the family farm. Yeah, you, you don't yeah, get. That. I think that's a like, huge barrier for people getting in. Uh, so Mary sort of crossed that barrier by allowing us that opportunity at her farm. You know, um, oh, what a lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. yeah I'm, I'm glad we've given her such a shout out. Actually, that that's great. Um, I'm, I'm loving it. But we're going to have to start wrapping things up. Future. Um, yeah. I mean, you've obviously got the uh, you've got the goats, you've got your new cheeses. What does the future look like? Um, so yeah, we we we're doing a lot more cow's milk actually um, because working with strictly. So one of the things that came from Enfield was what is great milk, right? So after talking to these farmers, looking at systems, you know, one of the things that I did come up was uh, you know like species diversity in the pasture you know allows for sort of more microbial diversity you know and then when animals sit down in these species species diverse pastures the microbes get onto their teats and so that those they get onto the teat surface even the actual things that they're grazing you know what are those amino acids what are those proteins in those plants and those things that go on to produce fats and fatty acids they're different from a diverse from a species diverse pasture than if you're you know feeding on a sort of conventional house system so something that did come out of it a little bit of certainty for, for me was if you want really unique cheeses when i say great milk what is unique milk so maybe great milk is unique milk if you want to have unique milk then these systems do allow for that um and after going around it and looking around the world i came back and i was like i i know a farmer you know up the road who's producing really good really amazing quality cow's milk and um and we look to try and expand on our sheep's milk range by working with other farmers. But a lot of the farmers who maybe approached or we talked to, they were just getting into farming. They weren't established. They weren't sure whether they should be in a more intensive or extensive system. And I was like, there's a farmer up the road. He's five generations in. Uh, they milk dairy shorthorns on an organic system. And they're mm. obsessed with conservation and hay meadows and species diversity. And I'm like, I, every time, in my understanding, that is great milk up the road. And it was just going into you know, into the organic milk market um, in a tanker with everybody else's. So so I approached James um, and got him excited about it. And then COVID interrupted it. But anyway, two years later, we're now taking milk from him and turning yeah. that into Ranger Cheeses too. Um, and I'm really excited about that. I'm, it, sometimes it overshadows when I should probably be talking about our sheep farming and our goat farming. <laughs> it's farming, but partly because I'm just, I get really excited about it. The opportunity yeah. for us to make more cheeses, uh, different cheeses, you know, and a, and a slightly bigger scale. So we produce you know, in total, you know, 10 tons of sheep's cheese here a year from our milk. We produce probably eight or 10 tons of goat's cheese, which is, which is micro. It's, it sounds a lot, but over a whole year, it's, it's small quantities. 
Um, but yeah, the, you know, the opportunity is there for us to maybe make 50 to 100 tonnes with his milk if we were to scale and do that. So wow. that kind of makes me excited that we could have a real impact on um, on the, the cheese that people are eating, right? You know, it doesn't, it wouldn't need to just be, uh, you know, for the very specialist niche sort of artisan market, we could make cheese that, you know, maybe the local kids could have in their cheese sandwiches at school, you know, that sort of, um, that side of things, which that, so that does get me excited a bit more because, and that's not to neglect, you know, the artisan route to what we are. St. James is a high quality cheese. I wish everybody was eating it. And I wish we, you know, in a sense, I wish none of it had to leave the county and we'd all consume it here, but it's a, because of the nature of what it is, it's expensive, it's limited quantities. Um, and so that it, this, this other idea is that we can um, add more value to our community locally. So if we can buy milk, work with other farms, you know, work with other high quality milk, we can maybe sort of transform more than just our farm, you know, we can expand out. So that's, that's kind of the program we're in at the moment, which is, which is an expansion. I have to be honest, we're expanding our business to accommodate, to work with more milk, you know, but milk from these credible quality, reliable farming systems, you know, sustainable farming systems. So that's, that's where we are. Of course, that means searching new products, new markets, um, finding new ways to sell cheese finding new customers to buy cheese uh you know really disrupting the space that's there and saying well how do we um you know how do we convert a chain of cafes to use our you know cow's milk halloumi product or style products on their menu when they can't even call it halloumi you know how do we do that and how do we do it um when you know they're faced with a, a, a deduction off their bottom line of 30 grand a year if they swap to organic conservation practices right it's like that's a challenge for us that we're trying to work out. Well, maybe that's we have to do things a little bit differently and uh, approach things differently. But the idea being that actually we can make that if we can displace a more industrial product with you know one that supports proper farming, quality farming, then that that feels like a job we we have to do. You know, like I, I have to do that job. That's my yeah. responsibility, well. I guess. You know, we have to try and change that that food system where we where we see where we can make change if we can get people eating cheese from better farming systems then that's a result more people eating better cheese would be my um, my new holy grail mission if i was going again how do we get more people eating but eating better cheese would be the next no field question if i was allowed to do two weeks you know but, um, <laughs> yeah that's the future so the future is more i have to say but um okay. working differently trying to support those farmers around us that we work with to be i guess uh you know, a meaningful sort of, well, firstly, an employer in our area, meaningful jobs and employment. You know, I want to know that kids locally like me might rub shoulders with a cheesemaker like I did. You know, I got that opportunity. I'd like to think that that could be something that St. James Cheese, that we could we could do that. We could give people opportunity to go outside, to think outside of just, oh, they're just dairy farming or, you know, the milk just gets picked up, taken in a tanker and ends up God knows where. Well, actually, no, maybe this could be a platform for somebody to follow a career in cheese or a passion for cheese in the future or a passion for farming. Um, and maybe, you know, other farmers who think, oh, we could produce milk differently. Maybe we'll go and talk to St. James Cheese. Maybe we'll uh, either set up our own dairying or maybe we'll collaborate with them to do something. So that, that would be the idea is that we create opportunity um, in our local area and meaning in our, and value in our local area. Um, and in the, the meantime, producing better quality cheese for more people to eat. Oh, Martin! I think what you and Nicola have built so far, and what you're what you're moving forward to, is is it's super exciting. So yeah, it's well done. Uh, we're going to finish with the final two questions, which I ask everyone at the end of the show. Uh, the first is: if you have a message for the public, what would it be? Eat better cheese. Um, <laughs> that <would be> <laughs> message. Life is too short to eat boring cheese. You know, I um, couldn't agree more. I think just to you know to ask questions and, and support it. You know, if you like what someone's doing, you like the sound of this, 
you know, you like the idea that, you know, local people get to do decent jobs, you know, and, and be interested in what they do. And farmers get to do things well and to the highest standard that they want to do it, you know, then pay for it, right? Go in your local cheese shop, buy a lump of cheese, you know, ask where it comes from, ask who farmed it, ask what the connection is, you know, and and, and ensure like you would with fair trade coffee, you know, ensure that where, where possible, everyone through the chain is getting rewarded for their work, you know. Um, but I think that, that yeah, so the, public, the message to the public was, you know, support your independent shops, support your independent stores, um, you know, and your independent farms and cheese and milk is where you can. I think that's, that goes without saying. But yeah, ask questions and be honest. If something's really, really cheap in a supermarket, you know, and even though it says made by some, you know, made up farm name or whatever, and it's got a picture of a cow on the front, be honest with yourself. Do you think that that cheese at that price means that everyone in that supply chain is getting rewarded for their hard work and, I think a lot of people, a lot of public, if you stood in front of them in Tesco's and with the packet in your hand and, and asked them to justify how much, you know, for example, how, how does a chicken just cost, you know, four quid? I think most people, if you really pitched it to them, could honestly just look, could answer the question, yeah, you're right, I should put that back down and go shop somewhere else. I think, you know, there's a question about affordability. We're living through cost of living. I'm totally aware of that. Um, just like everybody, it's, it's, it's true. But I think there's a sense that we've, we've been used to cheap food for too long. Um, and it's at the expense of opportunity in food as an industry and a business. You know, enthusiasm like mine has come through working in the independent. Right, I've got chance. I've had chance to travel. I've had chance to engage with you know cheesemakers in Europe, in America. I've got chance to follow and pursue my passion, which I think is I've been really fortunate for that. But I've done it in spite of the British food industry. You know, seventy six percent of food in the UK goes through supermarkets, and they haven't supported one ounce of my vision or dream. You know. But yet the independent food sector has managed to give me opportunity to travel, to meet people from all over the world, from different backgrounds, different cultures, and to come back and spread that message on my farm in Cumbria. So, you know, what an amazing achievement of the of the anti-food system that we have, you know, the alternative food system, which represents a small percentage, has given this great opportunity and to me and to lots of others like me who are passionate and doing their bit, you know, or trying to do their bit. We're supported in spite of the British food system. So I think, you know, if you can avoid the supermarkets, shop local, Maybe not local, but shop, you know, with an independent, wherever that may be. Um, yeah, that's that's my advice to the public. Question one. Awesome. And your message to farmers? Um, farmers, get out of your own way. You know, there's a lot of smart people out there who have <laughs> the answer. Um, stop telling them that it's not the right answer. Uh, I think farmers, the, the, the smart farmers have the ability to get out of their own way and to collaborate with other people. Um, where we've done well, it's because we collaborate. Where we we've had success it's because we've collaborated there's a lot of landowners out there don't know what to do with the land there's a lot of farmers don't really know what to do with the farm you know trust me somebody out there from a different background to yourself or from your you know your walk of life somebody out there has an answer how to make your farm profitable just open the door and let them in talk to these people because we're like we're a, a weird mix of people in the uk we're 66 million people farmers are 180,000 of them or less you know the idea that you're going to find the answers that the 66 million want from your group of friends in 180,000 is absurd, really. So I think opening the doors to people with with vision, with ideas, you know, as Mary Holbrook opened the door to me in Somerset, you know, I think that's where the potential lies. And I think if farmers can get out their own way and open the door to collaboration, maybe take a little bit of risk on people, you know, at a personal level. Um, I know so many people who wanted to get into farming or do things, and each time they struggle with access to land, access to capital access to you know to a market or whatever or premises you know and yet 
I look around me and I see empty buildings, I see empty farms, I see farmyards, I see farmers complaining they've got nowhere to sell their products. And yet, you know, on the other hand, there's people who want to sell it, there's people who want to buy it, there's people who want to handle it, process it. So I think farmers get, you know, get out of your own way, uh, collaborate, you know, open your minds and, um, yeah, and engage with, with those people who are, you know, passionate and inspired to make change. It's a great message. Um, how do our listeners follow you, help you get involved? Um, if you want to follow my rantings and political aggravation, <laughs> go on Twitter. Uh, if you want to look at pictures of broken tools in my workshop and me scratching my head, go on Instagram. Uh, but if you want to follow anything meaningful and important about our cheese, follow Nicola on Facebook. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, if you want to know about our cheese, the Courtyard Dairy is my self-appointed PR master, um, Andy Swinscoe at the Courtyard, hugely um, supportive for us as a business. So, And he, he does a much better job than us telling our customers about what, what he does with our cheese. You know, likewise, Neil's Yard Dairy do the same and uh, two pounds. Two There's a lot of cheese businesses out there who, who support us and work with us. So, you know, go in your local independent cheese shop and ask about us and, you know, we'll, we'll be there. Buy our cheese. No, you're a very busy man. Really oh, appreciate you. your time, and, and I really appreciate everything you're doing. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's a very exciting story. So thank you for telling it to us. No, great to talk to you. Thank you for your uh, work in highlighting our story and getting the message out. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, that is it for today. Um, if you haven't already, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Next week, uh, we're heading north again. We'll be on the north coast of Scotland in Caithness to meet mixed farmer Ranald Angus. On the Rural Business Focus podcast this week, I'm joined by Jamie Perry, who is Director of Lasting Change the Hope Revolution Foundation, to talk about the big subject of hope. Now, rural Business Focus comes out every Tuesday morning and is all about inspiring and informing rural businesses to help them to be their very best. So if that sounds of interest and you haven't listened to that, please head over to them wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thanks again to Martin for today and to our primary podcast sponsor, A-Plan Rural Insurance, for supporting the show. Please see the show notes for more information and for any links mentioned today. And now, though, I'm Ben Eagle. This has been Meet the Farmers. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you have a great week.